listening to Female VC Lab, a podcast that showcases the journeys of female investors. My name is Barbara Bickham, and I am an award-winning CTO and VC that teaches companies and investors about emerging technology. I am sitting down with female VCs and investors to talk about their funds, how they invest, and how they make an impact. Welcome to the Female VC Lab podcast. I have Elizabeth from SoGal Ventures here. So Elizabeth, in one line, give me your name, your title, and the name of your fund. Thanks so much for having me, Barbara. I am Elizabeth Galbit. I'm one of the co-founders and managing partners of SoGal Ventures. Thank you so much for being here today. What inspired you to become a venture capitalist? So I like to call myself the accidental venture capitalist. I've always been pretty entrepreneurial and had many businesses from the time I was just a few years old all the way through grad school, which I think taught me a lot about what being an entrepreneur means. And it was actually while I was in grad school that I was running an organization with student entrepreneurs at Johns Hopkins and Maryland Institute College of Arts. And there were some incredible entrepreneurs. But at that time, this was back in 2015, there was very little capital going into the Baltimore ecosystem. Very few investors thought they should be investing in companies that were based in Baltimore. And I kind of joke, I call it Stanford Talent Baltimore Prices. Amazing (laughs) talent coming out of the area. That's awesome. Healthcare, data science, cybersecurity, just so many interesting areas where there's tons of talent in the uh, geographic area, but Mm -hmm. very few investors and very few investors that want to do deep technical investing in things like that. And at the time I was working a set of these founders that were creating a digital pathology in the cloud company. Mm -hmm. So if a doctor thinks you have cancer, you get a biopsy, that biopsy is sent to a pathologist and for certain types of cancers, there's actually over a 50% non-concurrence rate. So that means if two hmm. pathologists look at your same biopsy, there's more than a flip of a coin chance that they're going to have different opinions. Hmm. And that opinion means you could perhaps have to get a mastectomy. Right. Or it could mean that you're just going to be monitored. Hmm. And because of our healthcare system right now, usually only one pathologist is looking at your biopsy. And in many countries, there's not even enough pathologists to do that. So for certain cancers, there's more of a flip of a coin chance that you may not get what's really the correct diagnosis. Diagnosis, right. And it actually, while I was in grad school, happened to my dad. He had had three biopsies on something in his skin that looked a little suspicious. And he's a doctor himself, and these pathologists were his friends. And all three biopsies, they said, oh, no, you don't have cancer. Only then on the fourth, years later, was it like, 
oh shit, we messed up. This is camp. And at the time, of course, it's much later and it's progression. You're, of course, you everything has what. gone on. Years and everything years has gone on right. for years everything without. Everything has gone on for years. And you weren't feeling quite right, but you knew something was off. Yeah, exactly. And so he had to have a more intense surgery. The prognosis mm-hmm. was worse. Luckily, he's doing okay. But this happens to families and people all over the world. All the t- and all the time. And this company that I met while I was at Johns Hopkins, it was a group of undergrads, was basically using computer vision and AI to help solve this problem and see really microscopic differences that a human eye can't necessarily always see. But I worked for about a year and a half trying to connect them to investors, hosting events, doing everything trying to get them funding and just like nobody wanted to invest. At the time, there were very few people that understood as investors enterprise software or even using computer vision technology in healthcare. If they were investing in healthcare, it wasn't like it is today where it's now this huge industry that VCs invest in. They were investing in either biotech or they were investing in like consumer healthcare, like Fitbits. But like the enterprise software of healthcare was not there yet from an investor landscape perspective. Mm -hmm. And I had this unique insight because before grad school, I had been working with actually the VA and Department of Defense to modernize all of their healthcare software. Um, And I really had this insight of this is the way we're moving. And there's Mm -hmm. going to be all these companies that are coming in and really digitizing healthcare in different ways. And so I just knew this company couldn't like not exist. I didn't want families to go through the pain like I did with my dad. I knew this was creating so much cost and just heartache in the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. But these students were about to graduate, no money. They were going to go work at just normal companies after graduation. And I was like, this cannot happen. And at the time, it was when dorm room fund under first round capital was just starting, but they only invested in students from certain universities, which didn't include Johns Hopkins at the time. And so I was like, with some of my co-founders, we got to create like the dorm room fund of Baltimore, D.C., Johns Hopkins. And we had no idea what we were doing. We were about to graduate ourselves and we're like, we'll just ask alumni for like $100,000 and then give it to these startups and then we'll go off on our merry way. And one of us, was my co-founder Demi, was going to go work at Goldman and I had a startup that I was going to work on. Long story short, that is not at all how funds That's work. Kinda- Yes. Accidental <laughs> fund manager. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funds are 10, 15 year commitment from Absolutely. the fund manager. They're incredibly legally complex. You can't just hand people money and you can't just take people's money either. It's not True. that easy. Luckily, we had some amazing mentors who were alumni of the university, one on the legal side that did all the legal work for us pro bono and really spent the summer with me, basically teaching me how to be a venture capitalist from the legal side. And we were the first investor into this company, the first $10,000 check. And as of this week, they're actually closing a huge new round that values them in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Congratulations. Um, They went on to, we helped basically find their $1 million seed investor by the time they had their cap and gown graduation, the deal actually closed as they were like walking through the processional for their graduation and then they could build their business, right? And have Mm -hmm. this impact. And they work with companies like Siemens. They're actually digitizing the entire, it's called like the joint pathology lab, which is where 
the U.S. holds all the historical data of all the cancer specimens. Like they're the ones digitizing. Oh wow! That now, and if you think awesome. like how much we can learn from like all these samples were traditionally just kept in like warehouse, all these rare cancers, all these different things. Now we can all learn from the data once it's been digitized, and medical students and researchers and everyone can use the full knowledge of what we have from cancers that have happened in the past and that are currently happening. So it's like such a cool story to see. Like I was a very small part of making that happen for them and just how much impact they've had so far. But it wasn't that I went into grad school and was like, I'm going to do VC recruiting. I'm going to be a venture capitalist. <laughs> right. like it was more I'm like- to start funding these companies. <laughs> yeah. I need to solve this problem for myself. I'm really sad about my dad. This is an amazing company and I need to figure out how to get it funded. And the way I ended up doing that was just through right, raising my first venture capital fund. And from there, one of the LPs that was a Johns Hopkins alumni invited me to a program at Stanford for venture capitalists. It was the first time they were running this executive education program. Mm -hmm. And I was by far the youngest, most inexperienced person there. Everyone else had their own VC funds, had already done tons of deals. And I was basically there to pitch this alumni for two weeks on this student fund. And it was there where I met my business partner, Pocket Sun, and she had been doing a very similar thing. Yeah, she had been doing a very similar thing while she was in grad school at USC, Mm -hmm. but really focused on women in diversity. So when she was in her entrepreneurship grad program, her professors like somehow could not find any women or diverse individuals that isn't that so isn't that so strange in southern california wait a second like can't find any people in southern immigrant i am asian no community (laughs) like i need some role models that look like me so she had started holding events for other people in the student base Mm -hmm. that brought in speakers that could be more realistic role models for them in the world of entrepreneurship. And very quickly, she had gone from having a 40-person event with a cupcake entrepreneur to like a three-day 600-person event with 30, 60 speakers. And so the demand was there, but she was really seeing through that again, like there's no capital going to Mm -hmm. women and diverse founders. And this is like a huge need. You can host as many events as you want, just like I was seeing in Baltimore you could bring Very in a to talk, mentor, all these different things. But unless you actually mobilize capital, like change isn't going to occur, as I'm sure you've experienced, too, with your work, Barbara. Well, yes, <laughs> we're all we're all part of this podcast is is for is to showcase this. One of the reasons why I started this during the pandemic was to showcase uh, women, venture capitalists and how we got to where we are and. And why are we even doing this? And because this is not an easy thing to do, as you stated so eloquently in the beginning. So we, why are we doing this? And I think collecting yeah. these stories is important. So everyone yeah. can So this understand. was like 2015, the Ellen yes. Powell Kleiner Perkins case was just happening. Yes, yes. Um, it was the beginning of this like Me Too movement in venture capital. Mm-hmm. And neither of us felt like we could find jobs in venture capital. Like we had been explicitly told many times, either our firm doesn't hire women or you don't fit. You don't have the MBA or whatever. Yeah, you don't come from Harvard, you don't come from Stanford, you don't come from a tech company 
company. And so Pocket actually raised her hand when we had a guest lecture at the Stanford program, which was Jason Calacanius, kind of the famous mm-hmm. angel investor. Yes. Mm-hmm. And she said, look, I've been b- building this community of diverse individuals who have all these companies. Like I want to go work in venture and I want to deploy capital here, but like clearly the culture in the industry is not there yet. What do I do? And he basically said, well, yeah, you could try and apply to hundreds of places. I doubt you're actually going to get a job, but maybe try and create your own thing. And if it doesn't work out and you try it for a year or two, then you'll have this huge network of people that actually saw you trying to do something. So it will be easier for you to get that job anyways. But if you really want to change culture and you really want to invest in the types of founders you want to invest in, you got to do it yourself. And this was a crazy thought at the moment because we were 23 and 25 years old. My student fund wasn't up and running yet. We hadn't you know, made any investments and we did not look at all like any of the people in the industry. And there were a few female founded funds at that time, but it was yes. like less than a handful. Few, few and far between. Few and far between and all very small. They all had hard times raising capital. Mm -hmm. And so we went on this mission to talk to as many VCs as we could so we could learn about how to do this and be good VCs. And people would just say the meanest things like you have no right to do that. Who do you think you are? Who do you think is going to give you any money? Who do you think you are thinking that you can like correctly manage people's money? Like you guys are... And we would cry out of some of these rooms because we were so excited to meet some of these people that we thought were going to be our role models. And then they were just like, and then reality really and cruel sometimes. And then reality hit. Yeah, and <laughs> we'll reality. Say, and then reality hit. And so I think for our first few years, it was really like this battle of our own confidence of like, can we really do this? Do we have the right to be doing this? Is there a space for us? Mm-hmm. to do this in. So we did a lot of things to write, test these hypotheses. And so one of them was we started writing tiny angel checks. We were actually like, she was doing career counseling on the side and I was doing ACT tutoring on the side for $300 an hour so that we could write a $1,000 angel check. Mm-hmm. And then we were like, I was starting the student fund and starting to write those really small checks there. And then people were like, there's not enough women entrepreneurs to have a whole fund around that. And we were like, okay, let's host like a global competition and bring together the best women entrepreneurs from across the globe. And let's bring in all these VCs and let's prove them wrong that there are enough women entrepreneurs building amazing companies. And with no brand name, we did that. And we had like almost 2000 applications. And we brought in 50 VCs in Silicon Valley. And they're like, this was better than YC Demo Day. And we're like, we know. Um, So before we actually even started raising SoGal Fund One, between our very small angel investments and like my student fund, we had already made 27 investments collectively together. And it was really to prove like, do we know how to invest? Do we know how to be partners together of a firm? And do we want to be? Because we had never been friends or known each other before this Stanford program. And we were working long distance from the very 
beginning together? And then do entrepreneurs actually want us as their investors? And do we actually do a good job investing in these companies? Are we helpful? Do we have the skills that everyone's telling us we don't have the skills for? And by that time, only by the time we had made 27 investments, which like granted is like more investments than most VCs ever make in their entire careers, did we feel like we had permission to even go try and raise a fund? And then raising that fund took four years to get our first $15 million under management. And our fund had, we were already at 3X multiple on invested capital by the time we closed it. And companies had gone from where we had written them seed checks to they were already at the series C and series D by the time we finally closed our fund. That was like how hard it was for us to fundraise our first fund. Um, so it was definitely a journey and it's an entrepreneurial one, which I'm sure many of the sort of people on your show have all told their stories of just how hard it is to get there. It's not for the faint of heart. Absolutely. Definitely a marathon, not a sprint. Can you talk a little bit about your thesis and the motivation behind your thesis? Yeah. So Gal Ventures invest in how the next generations live, work and stay healthy. So that's consumer tech, health tech, future of work, enterprise tech. And it's really focused on millennials and Gen Z, but even more so focused on, okay, if it was that sort of the rise of the rest of us in society were to redesign society to fit our needs and create a safe, equitable space for all of us, what are the companies that would help power that? society. So I know that's like a big way of thinking about it, but it's really, we see that the world as it is has been truly designed, right, by majority white men for majority white men. And now it's how do we redesign the world to serve all of us? And so our first fund, we had 42 companies in that fund, ranging from accessible labs to sustainable baby toys to help people be better parents and develop their children's brains, to like cosmetic companies that bring joy, to like cancer treatments that are more affordable and accessible for pets, bringing down the price of cancer treatment for your pet by a factor of 20x. So really just all different types of companies, but really looking at like, how do we make the world a better place for all of us? Cool. What are you currently learning or listening to or reading these days? Yeah, I think the past few weeks, we've really gone right from a time of abundance in venture to now a potential recession and downturn. And so recently, it's just been talking to a lot of our peers and trying to figure out how do we best position our companies for survival in markets where capital may be constrained and how do we position them Like we're very lucky our companies are growing and doing quite well and they're serving real needs. But right, it's always hard for people who aren't white men to raise capital and like it's only going to become harder in a downturn. So really making sure we understand what's going on from a macro and microeconomic perspective so that we can help our portfolio founders prepare for that. Awesome. This is the bonus question. Everyone knows what it is. In the next two years, how do you see venture capital or investing changing or evolving? Yeah, I think there's so many exciting changes. The one I'm really pumped for is right, like when Pocket and I started SoGal, there was only a handful of us 
doing this. Now there's hundreds of like women GPs going out on their own, starting their own firms with investment theses that go across the spectrum in all different interesting areas. And I think that's so exciting. We need like thousands of us to make a dent in just how inequitable the industry is. And I'm just so excited for this because the data shows, right? Like when there's more women investors at the table, they invest in more women-led companies. And I think like the initial couple cohorts of us are having such good returns that like eventually there's going to be more and more data that just makes it this unstoppable force that cannot be ignored anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just really excited for the evolution of that. That's awesome. How do people contact you? Yeah. If you're a startup founder you can email me or we have like a deals email. It's just a deals at SoGalVentures.com. And you can, you know, submit your little bullets and deck. And we look at everything that comes in. We get anywhere from 50,000 to 150,000 deals a year. So there's no way as a small team, we can respond to all of them, but we do look at every single one that comes in. You don't need a warm introduction or anything like that. Just send That's us right. your stuff. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, from SoGal Ventures for being yeah, our thank guest. Thank you so much for having me and doing this series. This is great to amplify all these important voices in the industry. Yes, thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Trail and Ventures. Find and invest in the next billion dollar emerging tech company. Sign up for our exclusive content at https colon slash slash trailin t-r-a-i-l-y-n dot com to find out more. Find us on Apple, on Spotify, and on Google Podcasts. Thank you for listening.